0: Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about.
1: Welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm Robin Colucci, and today our topic is audiobooks. You know, audiobook sales and consumption have been booming. This is the most rapidly growing segment of the publishing industry, and it's been on a growth surge for the last eight years of double-digit revenue growth in the field of audiobooks. In 2019, we had another epic year of audiobook sales growth with 16% growth. And the total sales in audiobooks was $1.2 billion. That's billion with a B. And this is a phenomenal thing that's occurring. And because of that, I wanted to bring on an expert who could help us understand a little bit more about audiobooks and how authors should be thinking about audiobooks and what we might be able to do as authors to capitalize on this massive opportunity. So with that in mind, I have brought on Tina Dietz. Tina is an award-winning and internationally acclaimed speaker, audiobook publisher, corporate podcast producer, and vocal leadership expert who has been featured in media outlets including ABC, Inc., The Huffington Post, and Forbes. Tina's first podcast from the Start Something show was named by Inc. Magazine as one of the top 35 podcasts for entrepreneurs. That is pretty impressive. Tina's company, Twin Flame Studio, amplifies the messages of experts globally to their target markets via audiobooks, podcasting, and leadership. Tina divides her time between the U.S. and Costa Rica, where she's part of a leadership team building a conscious community called Vista Mundo. So without further ado, let's welcome Tina. So, Tina, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Robin. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm so excited to speak with you because even though I've been in the publishing world for, gosh, well over 30 years and long before there was such a thing as audiobooks, it's actually an area that I don't know a whole lot about. So I think I'm as excited for myself to learn as I am for our listeners.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an interesting world and an interesting industry, so happy to share.
1: Yeah, so tell me a little bit about. I mean, I think we all know what an audiobook is, right? A lot of us mm-hmm. listen to them, have them. Something that I'm curious about is you know, Audible is kind of the most famous platform. Something I learned, or at least got a taste of in our previous conversations, is there's other platforms.
2: That's true. Yeah.
1: Like I said, this is where you have newbie Robin.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Audible is the 500-pound gorilla in the room. They've been around for a long time. And audiobooks have been around in one format or another since about 1929 was the first audiobook, which was on an album. And then, of course, we... So audiobooks were on albums, and then they were on tapes. A lot of us remember book on tape, right, for years. And then it moved to CDs, and then, of course, it moved digitally. And it was the digital transition that happened that audiobooks have received a huge resurgence and a huge renaissance because prior to that, you know, I don't know, one of the first audiobooks I listened to as a young adult was Deepak Chopra's Magical Mind, Magical Body, and it was 12 tapes, I think, 12 or 16. I could not keep track of those damn tapes. And I was always like, what tape is next? I don't remember which one I was listening to and, you know, and all of that. So when digital audiobooks came about, it really changed the game. And, and much like the iPod Nano and the, and the iPod in general changed music, audiobooks got changed in the same way, same medium. And so audiobooks, music, podcast, all of this audio content has had a tremendous rise in the last 15 years or so. And that's where
1: stop you right here just for a second. Yeah, it's such a drastic thing that in my mind there weren't audiobooks. Yeah, anymore. exactly. And, and luckily, I haven't been in the publishing industry since 1929. So that's me neither. Actually, that's actually a relief. But really, it's so interesting because you're right. Like as soon as you started saying it, I'm like, oh yeah, the tapes. Yeah. But it was so clumsy. It was so difficult to manage. You had to keep track of where you were. You could lose one and lose a whole chunk of the book. And you had to be home, right? You had to be somewhere where you could also
2: use the equipment. That's right. If you didn't have a car and, you know, Walkmans, things like that, I mean, that's where things got... uh... More popular in that era. But prior to that, you know, with albums, no, obviously you couldn't do that. And I even remember being a little kid sitting in front of my record player and having the book and record from Disney, you know, when Tinkerbell rings her little bell, it's time to turn the page. You know, I loved those when I was growing up. Those were so much fun. It was part of learning how to read. Yeah. So audiobooks have this lovely, rich tradition. But because we live in such a different era now, with the internet and digital and bluetooth and all the technology we have it's it like you said it like the dots don't necessarily get connected between the two so audible in that pivot does hold more than 60 percent of the market share in audiobooks worldwide and audiobooks are not as popular in other places of the world outside of the english-speaking kind of western cultures however They're having a tremendous rise in countries like China and India as the markets have opened up. I'm kind of like waiting with a bowl of popcorn, like excited to see what's going to happen there. But there are, going back to your original question, a lot more outlets than that. There's more than 40 other audiobook outlets. And this goes everywhere from your libraries, like so many people. well, Most people get audiobooks out of their libraries, and those are usually using apps like OverDrive and Libby and sometimes Hoopla. Those are the three big ones for libraries. Those are the apps that they go through. There's also audiobooks.com, Downpour, Scribd, Blackstone has their own thing. And of course, you can purchase audiobooks through Nook and and, and other places as well. So there's, there's a large distribution world for audiobooks out there.
1: And so I'm curious, when a library purchases an audiobook, do they purchase it like a license or do they purchase... I a single audio book, and then like like they would a book on the shelf.
2: Yeah, well, the world of libraries does work differently than the retail world, and it's not an area that I have a tremendous depth of expertise, in, so I'll be really transparent about that. To get on the radar of libraries is a lot more challenging. It depends on the types of titles that they're looking for and kind of their yearly budget mandate. And so every community is different. As you can imagine, the number of libraries across just the US alone is huge, you know, in the tens of thousands. And so getting into libraries can be an entire strategy in and of itself. But the way to get on the the radar of libraries is a little opaque because, you know, you're going to just campaign libraries? I mean, you could, but it's, it's a little different. So the licensing works different for libraries. They have to purchase more than one license, basically, in order to be able to pass it around, so to speak. So, you know, there are some people in the industry, I wish I had a name for you off the top of my head, who specialize in selling books to libraries. And then the audiobook and the book process for purchasing to libraries is, from what I understand, quite similar.
1: Yeah. Make a note to get me that contact. That could be also interesting. Right?
2: It's a great niche.
1: Yeah, because that is, I did a little research just for a client because I think they're they were writing a book that was more for, like, school-age kids. And there's, like, over 40, there were over 46,000 libraries, just school libraries, never mind other libraries, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> just in the case of 12, you know, there were, like, over 46,000 libraries in the U.S. at the time. And this was a while ago, so, yeah. All right, so there's all these different platforms, and but Audible has the lion's share. So I'm curious, when you're working with a... A client on an audiobook. Since we're we kind of jumped in on distribution, sure. What is your goal with someone comes to you for help with an audiobook? Do you focus on Audible or do you try to get them? How do you look at the, all these platforms that are available as a, as part of your strategy?
2: Well, there's really have to look at the overall goals of the author. So we work with nonfiction authors. So fiction goals, nonfiction goals, very different worlds, right? Generally, the goals with a fiction author is sell copies. Yeah, that's the name of the game. That's the only name of the game. Whereas a nonfiction author generally has their book is being used in service of building their platform. So yes, selling copies is important. If you're selling bulk copies of your book, you're actually more likely to sell them in bulk when you're speaking. Or you know, to be handed out as a promotional item, as a loss leader, or various other things. You know, getting speaking gigs, attracting clients, getting press, media attention—all of those things. And so the goals are different, so the strategies are different. What binds the two together is, first of all, distribution platforms, and secondly, you know, of course, everybody does want to sell copies and wants visibility. And the third thing is that book marketing as you and I could definitely agree—is an evergreen thing you know, a little bit every day is better than a big push once. Right. So, and that's usually where authors get tired. (laughs) We could have a
0: whole
1: conversation about that. This is why, like you said, with the nonfiction authors, especially like I always tell my clients, look at what activities you already are doing to grow your business, or you know, you should be doing. Yes. And do those to promote your book because it'll pay you off way bigger way and it keeps the book in the conversation that way too.
2: Absolutely, high fives on that. So going back to your question about what we focus on, it's really, we have to look at the goals and the overall strategy of the company or the individual first. What do you want your audiobook to do for you? What do you already have in place? Do you have a marketing team? Do you already have strategies for your book? How is this going to dovetail with all of that? And so usually in terms of distribution, What we end up recommending for the most part, particularly for a newer book, if you have a book coming out as a launch and the audiobook is coming out right around the same time as your book is launching or say within six months afterwards, then usually what ends up happening is they'll be distributed exclusively through Audible, Amazon, and Apple Books for the first year, which takes advantage of a couple of things. One is a higher royalty rate. Royalty rates for exclusive distribution are 40% versus twenty five percent for non-exclusive distribution. And then the other thing it takes advantage of is just being able to focus on pushing your marketing and your customers and your audience at one platform. Okay. And
1: you again, because you yeah. just
2: have Amazon Audible and I, Apple Books. Apple Books, that's one technically that's considered exclusive distribution because Audible and Amazon are the same company and Apple Books has an agreement with Audible for distribution. So, it's just an automatic, also ran kind of thing.
1: And I'm going to guess Apple Books is probably the second biggest platform. Would that be accurate
2: or is there? No, you know, because Apple only holds 10% of the cell phone market. It oh. seems like it's everywhere. <laughs> but on a worldwide basis, Android is a much, much bigger player oh. in terms of the cell phone market. So, yeah, it's just that I know Apple is amazing in their marketing and they're amazing at creating evangelists for their brand.
1: Well, I'm just, I'm loving this because I'm just <laughs> very exciting. Okay, so this exclusive distribution, you said for the first year.
2: Yes, and then you can evaluate after the first year and decide if you want to continue on or if you want to go with non-exclusive and then get the the audiobook out to a bunch of more platforms.
1: And I mean, what would be a good reason to be on? Because I'm wondering if they're going to give you basically... So you're getting a, what you say, 40% royalty?
2: 40% royalty, yeah. Okay.
1: And then it goes down to 25% royalty. Mm-hmm. Does it ever add up that like getting that extra market share offsets the decrease in the
2: royalties? Well, it really comes down again to marketing and the goals. So if you don't market, it's not going to make any difference either way, <laughs> what it comes down to. But if you are marketing the book and you are using, oh, hey... it's a marketing opportunity just to change your distribution. So once you have your book on other platforms, you can make announcements about it. Oh, guess what? The audiobook is now available here. Oh, now it's available here. Oh, now it's available here. Did you know that this existed? So, so much of marketing in our digital age, particularly on the 24-hour news cycle that is social media, is coming up with interesting little did you know pieces of information. And much like being nominated for a book award or getting a book award or having your book in a new place or having a speaking opportunity. These are all little snippets of information just to offer to your audience to stay top of mind. So it creates, you know, the opportunity of distribution, additional distribution creates additional opportunity for content to market your book.
1: What I'm getting out of this is is that you're kind of, you're adding these other distribution platforms piecemeal, not just like all at once.
2: Yeah, you submit it all at once, but they tend to come in onesie, twosie in their approval process because you're using a portal. So the portals that we use, these are self serve portals. So um, not just for publishers, but for people who want to self publish as well. ACX.com is the common self publishing backend for audiobooks for Audible. And FindAwayVoices.com you can also use for Audible, but it will also help to get your book on up to up to 40 additional platforms. Not everybody is going to take your book, but a lot of them will. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I know. The nerve.
1: Once every book.
2: The nerve of them.
1: So, okay. So that's very helpful. What should I have asked you about distribution that I didn't?
2: You know, we actually covered, that's a lot of the really broad strokes of that particular. Um, I think the only thing about distribution that people need to know is that At least in the beginning, it's something you want to kind of stay on top of, and actually go in, you know, read your monthly reports, get familiar with the notations that are made, like because that's that's market research for you. You know, what channels are working for you, what are not working for you, you know, what are your best places to to find readers, and you know, certain distribution channels also individually, if you look into them, may have more opportunities for you to to promote your book in different ways. Some paid opportunities usually come up. So for example, find a way and there's a a program called Chirp and Chirp sends out a daily email for audiobook deals. So you can submit your audiobook to Chirp once it's been accepted through these other channels and then your book gets pushed out on a daily email to over 100,000 people now, you're going to give them a deep discount on the audiobook as a result. But again, if you're talking about nonfiction and building an audience, building notoriety, you know, all of that, that can be in your advantage. Very cool.
1: Okay. So uh, now I want to talk a little bit about audiobook production because mm-hmm. one thing that we see um, is there's definitely seems to be two tracks. Let's see if I get this right. Mm hmm. <laughs> I'm like I'm thinking. I just want to see how many of, of my assumptions we can torpedo today. But, but ah. I, think, I think this one might be right. That so we either have the author themselves reads reads the book or there's a voiceover artist. Did
2: yes, we- that is correct. Okay. Yeah. Woo! I got one. Occasionally, right. and occasionally there's a hybrid of the two. Okay. That's our third option. Yeah. So
1: there's a hybrid. Okay. There we go. All right. So. Talk to me a little bit about what are the kinds of things like if, if an author comes to you and they're like, "Well, I'm not really sure if I should read it myself or if I should hire a voiceover artist."
2: Mm-hmm. What
1: are some of the things that an author should be thinking about when they're making.
2: Well, one of the things the author should be thinking about again comes back to the purpose of the book, and you know if you are. Well, first of all, most authors who write nonfiction, who are building a platform, will come to me and say, I have to narrate my book. Nobody can do it like me. And that is the first assumption that we question because that may be true. However, what is the most important factor in someone deciding to purchase an audiobook is the quality of the narration. So even if the narrator, even if the author can read the book out loud in a way that they feel characterizes the book correctly, whether that translates or not to a listener receiving it the way it's intended is an entirely different matter. Because they may feel like this is how I need it to be read, but their, their listener may be going, that is not what you are actually portraying. Yeah. So that is one of the things we have to take a look at and evaluate. And a lot of the folks we work with are speakers. Narrating an audio book is very different than public speaking. Very, very different. It's a total, it's a different animal. Yeah. Well, when you're up in a stage, public speaking, you're speaking one to many. Whereas on a podcast or on narration, you're speaking one to one. So you can't get out there and be like, ladies and gentlemen, oh my gosh, this today we're going to be doing all of this and we're going to talk about audiobooks. And it just kind of like blows your face off. Right. You also can't be boring, but you have to slow down with an audiobook. So can't be boring, and you have to slow down, because audiobooks generally are at a slower pace than most other kinds of speaking. So there's a balance there. The breathing is different. And even just the duration of time that you have to spend recording an audiobook, and it's not just a matter of reading the book, it's reading the book in such a way that it sounds like you're not reading it. So there's all of these factors that go into it. And we actually, in the early days of developing the the company and the services and all of that, uh, we did experiment with a number of different ways of working with authors who wanted to narrate their own books, because it is an important thing. It is a very important thing. And about a third of our authors self-narrate, about two-thirds work with a professional narrator. That's the way it it shakes out. Some because they don't maybe have a great voice for narration. They're great for a keynote, but if you had to listen to them for six or seven hours, no. (laughs) Yeah. Again, different animal. Or um, there may be some physical issues. One of our, my very favorite authors, brilliant book, brilliant man, had a very rare form of head and neck cancer. He couldn't narrate his entire book. There was no way. So we did what I like to call the Tony Robbins sandwich with his book. Tony Robbins narrates the first chapter of his book and the last chapter of his book and has a professional narrator do the middle. Uh, so that's what, that's what we did with that particular client. It worked out really well. So those yeah, are some of the factors.
0: There's something in here
1: because when you were talking about like a, a speaker on stage being one to many, mm-hmm. really an audio book is actually a one-on-one.
2: Very one-on-one.
1: And I just want to point out something that goes, an idea that I think really goes along with that is something that, that I speak about fairly regularly is this idea of how a book is really the best way and when you're thinking about like a marketing avenue to create intimacy Yes. With your prospective client, you know, and or whoever, with your reader. And, and when we're talking nonfiction, you know, it's often your prospective client or somebody who's going to be influenced by you in some way. And so what you're saying about audiobooks and even the tone of the voice and the pace of the speech and, you know, probably volume and everything else, it really... I never thought of it before, but you're so right. And it really is a one-on-one conversation, just like the writing is, but it's so important to get that across. And it's even different than if you're standing at a book signing in front of the room and reading an excerpt.
2: Oh, completely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because you have more bodies there and different energy.
1: And that is one to many, but the audiobook book really is a one-on-one conversation. I love that. Okay. So one of the things is just vocal quality. Mm-hmm. Know, like even the amount of time the author is willing or able to?
2: Time is a big factor because it does take, so I'll give you a little math here, simple math. 10,000 words of a book is about one hour of audio. So you've got a 40,000 word book, you've got about a four hour audio book. So that four hours of audio book is going to take about 10 to 12 hours of recording time. Split up, And this is working with a professional organization like us. This is not DIY. DIY, double that. (laughs) Double that and add a bottle of vodka. (laughs) It's not just me saying this. Yeah. And it's like, do a shot for every hour of audiobook you do. Okay. It's a drinking game. But so you're going to spend 10 to 12 hours of recording time split up into two to three hour chunks. Because that's about as far as you can go without vocal fatigue and energy issues and all of that. So what we do to, to work with the author and take the technology out of their hands and also to give them the objective feedback and also to give them a person to play off of is we do full direction of our audiobooks, but we do it remotely. So we have software we're able to remote in to wherever the author is, anywhere in the world. Um, help them make sure that their sound is tuned correctly. We'll suggest a microphone, make sure they're in the right place in their home or office to record. And then we fully live direct and record the audiobook for them through the entire process. And that creates a wonderful product. And it also takes a lot of the stress and pressure off of the author. So all they have to do is focus on delivering their message and being really natural about it. And that helps a lot.
1: And so you're able to give them feedback as they're recording. Yes.
2: Slow down. Yeah, your energy's flagging. Let's try that again. Or you said that, I think you meant because your brain will reverse words or change words or things like that. You don't hear it as you're doing it. So, you know, it makes it a lot easier to catch issues. Also, a lot of our authors have charts, graphs, exercises, things like that in their books. There are industry standards on how to narrate those. So we're able to live coach people through all that process as well.
1: Wow, that's incredible. That's yeah. So, incredible. so when, when somebody, so let's talk a little bit about the other side of like hiring a vocal artist yes. to, to record your audio book. What are some of the things that you advise authors to consider when they're trying to make that decision? Like, let's say they've decided I'd like to use a voiceover artist. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that they should be thinking about as they're deciding what that's going to look
2: like. Yeah. So when we work with our professional narrators, and and I have done professional narration. My background is actually as a therapist. I grew up as an entrepreneur. I've owned multiple businesses. Did business coaching for years. But voice acting was a paid hobby for me because I love a stage and I love a microphone. And it was actually the master classes I took in audiobook narration that had me have this epiphany about. Why aren't all my colleagues and clients who are doing bestseller campaigns, why aren't they doing audiobooks? That was the rabbit hole I went down. That's how I got there. So the... So
1: still in the rabbit hole in a way. Still in the
2: rabbit hole. <laughs> I got a Warren. I got a whole network down there now, you know? <laughs>
1: It's remember.
2: carved out. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah, between the podcasting and the audiobooks, it's like microphones are a big part of my day. There you go. <laughs> one way or another. But narration and voiceover work... Again, it's its own industry. It has its own language. It has its own standards. So coming into that world as an author, or as a business owner, there are some things you need to know about that industry. And when we send out auditions, there's key pieces of information you need to provide to an author in terms of you know what are you paying, what section of the book you choose for an audition and how long it is. Um, and and where you choose from the book, you know, other key pieces of information that the narrator is going to need. And if you want somebody to emulate your energy, and maybe have a similar qualities to your voice, being able to articulate, what are those qualities that are most important? And, you know, what are the key pieces that somebody needs to know to give you to know if the book is going to first of all, resonate? with them and what they need to deliver to you in terms of, of an audition. A lot of mistakes that authors make doing this on their own are putting an audition piece out that's way too long and then being offended when somebody only sends back one minute of audition. Right. <laughs> Auditions need to be short. Another thing that happens a lot is, you know, getting into the production of the audiobook and not having been clear up front about the number of characters or the type of characters, even in nonfiction, or a lot of the pronunciation issues that can come in regionalisms. We had an issue a while back. We keep a running list of these, and this one we hadn't run into yet, where it was, uh, we said aunt, somebody's oh. you know, aunt and uncle, oh. and the author wanted aunt. I'm from- 38 replacements. Oh, man. Now, you could, just can't go back when in audio like you can in text and do a find and replace.
1: That's right, right.
2: So this narrator had to go back and we really worked with the author because normally we wouldn't even allow that kind of change at the end. That's something that really needs to be discussed up front. But fortunately, the narrator was game and it all worked out. But I mean, she would have had to replace entire paragraphs or entire sentences, depending on the situation in the book, just to replace aunt versus aunt. So these are the kinds of things we get ahead of and get on top of. Occasionally things happen like I just mentioned, but- we get ahead of it 99% more than working through it on, <laughs> on your own. That's for sure. So those are a few things.
1: That really is. So I mean, like, what is the question that an author asks themselves, even going into that? Like, how do they know to tell somebody that they want them to say aunt? That's, so that's it. The question they ask themselves, right? Or because I was just thinking, it made me think of the Chicago Manual of Style, which we both know is the, the publishing industry Bible for mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's a perfect book, except you have to know it might, there might be a mistake to look for the correct way That's to That's right. And so what I'm gathering is like somebody, like any, pretty much everyone in Connecticut would say aunt, like it wouldn't occur to us that we would have to tell anyone to say aunt. <laughs> right. And from Buffalo, we say aunt. <laughs> right, exactly. And it wouldn't occur to us, right, from other people, <laughs> never occurred. What do you mean, what's an odd? you know? So, yeah. so how do you help authors figure out what to ask for in even a situation like
2: that? Well, when we get in, we have a whole onboarding process where we go through things like that. We have protocols and guidelines and all of these things that we walk people through, walk our authors through to help prevent things like this. Everything from names to medical terminology to things like aunt, aunt, root, route, amore, amore, other types of regionalisms, even down to looking at, okay, are there any characters in your book, even if it's nonfiction, who are they? What do they sound like? I mean, one of my favorite books we ever did so far is called Tiger Bravo's War. And it is a 10-hour audio book about the Vietnam War that I would put up against Ken Burns any wow. day of the week. And our narrator, who actually works with us in the company now on our podcasting division, a wonderful guy named David White, He did an incredible job of just nuancing about 15 or 20 different soldiers' voices inside of this documentary-style memoir. So getting those characters out front and kind of getting a sense of who they are and and having the narrator demonstrate that before you get too deep into the production, that's really important.
1: Okay, so I want to bring up something because you just triggered a memory for me of an audiobook that I was listening to. And I was really enjoying. And I believe the author read most of. Mm-hmm. Except when they did a character. Oh boy. And they brought in a different voice. And by the way, this was a this was a traditionally published New York Times. Mm-hmm. And not only was it a terrible accent middle eastern accent
2: oh no so bad
1: that it sounded racist to me like, it, like
2: offensively bad like it was like like they went full apu from the simpsons kind yeah, of thing yeah Ay yeah yeah
1: that's a perfect analogy i was gonna say it was like a breakfast at tiffany's nightmare you know <laughs> <and> <laughs> no. played a chinese man you know oh, I mean, no. it, was, it was so bad I still enjoyed the book. I was like, every time that would happen, and unfortunately it was more than once in the manuscript, Mm -hmm. I literally would like cringe. Yeah. And it nearly ruined the experience for me. So what about characterization, especially when it's clearly a cross-cultural kind of narration?
2: That's super important.
1: This seems to me to be a, a real potential minefield. Say a little bit about her.
2: yeah, it can be. We produced a book recently that was author narrated, and the author was it was actually a really emotional book. You know, as I'm talking with potential clients and scanning through their books, um, a lot of them are you know highly emotional, and I was crying in the first two pages of this guy's book because he really was writing it. He was an angry, abusive man. And it was about his healing journey and what he wanted men to know. And it's an amazing book. And he had traveled to many countries as a professional rugby player. And so he had voices of these people that were from different, different countries, different cultures. And he actually had a lot of facility in doing this. He was able to kind of slip into their skins, which most authors don't have that kind of ability to do. But the director, one of the things that the director did is he went and listened to other authentic accents to see how far off or how far on the author was and to make sure it didn't come off as mocking or disrespectful in any way. So there's ways to handle it in the direction process. And professional narrators are generally very sensitive to this because they want things to be represented accurately. But again, that comes down to the audition process and vetting people.
1: We can imagine it, I didn't feel like we needed the accent in that book I'm telling you
2: a lot of times it's not necessary or there's just a shade you don't have to hit it hard.
1: It's <laughs> just like why is this even happening?
2: Yeah it happens a lot with male narrators doing female voices as well. some oh, yeah. brilliant at it. Yeah. Some of them characterize female voices as kind of whiny or shrewish or childish. And that's actually an issue in the industry that gets brought up regularly is, and on both sides, you know, women doing male voices, male men doing women's voices, because generally it's one narrator. Full cast recordings are still quite rare in the industry because of the cost of production. Some of them are great, like the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, but particularly in nonfiction, full yeah, cast recording now.
1: A lot of sense in fiction. Because
2: yeah, know. exactly.
1: Okay, well, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that because that was really, as you can tell, it left quite an impression on me.
2: Yeah, well, and finding, you know, if we have uh, culturally diverse authors, and one of our authors right now, his memoir, he's from China, and we opted not to have him do the narration. His articulation isn't quite up to speed. It might be hard for the listener. He's a brilliant speaker. So from the stage, he's fantastic. But again, eight to 10 hours on an audiobook, way harder. So we're actually, you know, one of our biggest challenges has been finding somebody who can authentically... Who is Chinese American or Chinese immigrated to the U.S. Who is a professional narrator who can do this voice authentically,
1: right? And still have like a hint of the authentic accent without being so thick.
2: Exactly. So it needs to be real.
1: Yeah, yeah
2: it needs to be real.
1: Wow, that's also right. That's another yeah. aspect of this: is if, if the author has,
2: we have several books in the pipeline that we know out. our narrator searches expanded because there are to be more opportunities for a diversity of narrators. It was for years and years and years. It was, this is audible. I'm audible guy. <laughs> right. And that's one of the reasons I'm, people didn't listen to audiobooks because I'm, they were boring.
1: I'm suburban white man. I'm- yes. Yeah. Can
2: you see my blue suit just from the tone of my voice? I bet you can.
1: <laughs> On weekends, I wear... Khakis
2: and play golf.
1: <laughs> yes. So I love that. I just got totally distracted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
2: a professional instigator. Yes. I just I warned you. Them. Yeah.
1: I knew we'd be friends. <laughs> so what I wanted to say is, this sounds like a heck of an opportunity. Because let's talk a little bit about what, in terms of investment-wise, what's the difference when we hire an artist to record. Our audiobook for us versus uh, doing it ourselves.
2: Yeah, there's a couple of levels. So we try to keep the cost of author narration and the cost of professional narration very similar. So our business model we've created has allowed for that because counterintuitively to a lot of people, it's not counterintuitive to me because I understand voice acting. It used to be in our company that author narration was way more expensive. Oh, interesting. Because I I know, I run into that all the time, but think about it. Lasted to bits. I know. We had to train the author on a whole new skill set. We had to research studios. We had to pay studio time, which is hourly, and studio time, depending on where you are in the world, is anywhere from $50 to $250 an hour. The editing was a lot more intensive because we weren't doing what's called punch and roll recording. We weren't doing live direction. Studios will give you a sound engineer who'll tell you maybe if you're screwing up, but they just record the whole session. We stop, back up, record again. We stop, back up, and record again. It gets rid of a lot of those errors. And the comfort level of the author, they were so much more tense because even with training them ahead of time, it was crazy. So all of those factors make for a much more expensive prospect. So you know, we've got things down and we have a negotiated rate with our narrators that we've kind of gotten a sweet spot. However, we do also have a premium level for narrators. These are folks who are in the actors union, SAG-AFTRA. And so the minimum required hourly rate to work with those folks is $225 an hour. That's what's called a per finished hour rate. So that can include multiple things. That's not studio hours. That's, I go back to that 40,000 word book is 4 hours long it would be 225 for 4 hours. Oh. Okay. So, you know, that's the math we're talking about here. We're not talking about 15 20 hours in a studio at $225 an hour. Well, that's a lot more reasonable than I would have imagined. Yeah. The average audiobook that we produce is generally somewhere in the $2,800 to $5,000 range.
1: Wow. Yeah. That seems very That's really great. I mean, I've heard of people charging two to four times that
2: to- Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can get really high depending on how much margin they're adding and you know again, if you're working out of New York or LA, your price automatically goes up because the cost of production is much higher in those cities.
1: But if you're hiring the talent or you like you said you're able to do it remotely, so that's not- Yeah.
2: Yeah, my company, all the companies I've ever owned have been except for my very first one was in completely remote. So the last 12 years we've been 100% remote and my team is across North America and Europe.
1: Fantastic.: Yeah. I love that. I know it's a, a lot of businesses, like mine is similar, that we're, we were already working remotely, so
2: yes, grateful for that.
1: The yeah, pandemic just added my social life to the remote uh, category, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know I lost all my coffee offices for a while. I know that's that, talk about first world problems, but right. nonetheless. Yeah.
1: Wow, well, this has been so informative. I'm trying to think of what we talked about. Production, distribution, costs,
0: talent.
1: I guess the thing that's occurring to me now is like without necessarily you don't have to reveal any memes or anything, but I'm just curious like do you have any stories of, you know, audiobooks either gone extremely well or horribly wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Because I always love a good a good story.
2: <laughs> yeah. So one of the reasons we changed our, the way we were doing things and I looked for solutions around author narration is because uh, both the amount of time uh, that it took to work with authors that way and then having to go to the studio and all this other stuff. And again, the cost involved. And like with many things in business, a lot of what has to be handled upfront is expectation management. So for people who don't understand what it takes to edit audio and re-record audio versus text, there really is, we'll call it a repeated education process. Now, most people get it. 90% of people get it, but we occasionally do end up with someone who um resists the training, resists the coaching, and then after recording wants to go back and re-record the whole thing because, quote unquote, Now they have a handle on it and think that's included. Ah. And that is not the way that works. You can't go back and do another 10 hours of recording because you feel like it and haven't taken the coaching and you haven't been willing to, to do the work that needs to be done. Similarly on the managing expectations on the professionally narrated side of things, it's really important, again, up front to get all of the expectations and voices and cadence and timing and pacing and all these things done. And we do all that in what's called the first 15 of the book. Take about the first 15, 20 minutes, produce it and make sure that it's what the author wants before we produce the rest of the book. So we actually have an audiobook that created a tremendous amount of havoc in the author's life because they realized in listening back to their own work, that they hated their own work and wanted to shutter their company wow yeah it was really intense it was really intense so it was in hearing a third party deliver their work back to them they basically had a breakdown and it was and I'm a therapist by training they were also in a different country difficult to reach you know kind of a long time difference and things like that so and you know and it ended up being an abandoned project with them not paying their bill because Uh they decided to not move forward with their company. That actually resulted in some policy changes
1: (laughs) on our side (laughs) of things. Yes, there's always a few things, I think, in every... Once you've been in business for a while, there's always a few items in the contract that were created
2: in response to a specific situation. (laughs) That's right. That's why contracts end up being so long.
1: Right. They're like, oh, well, we can't let that happen again. Let's add this.
2: Yeah. And making people initial certain paragraphs also is something we do because it's so easy. I
1: never saw that. Yeah.
2: It's so easy, like a terms and condition page to just scroll to the bottom and check I have read it. Yeah, But, you know, it is really important to read. I don't read all the terms and conditions (laughs) either. But in contracts, I definitely read every word because... There could be some questions there. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, and you know, I'm thinking about that. I mean, maybe
1: this was, I mean, they should have paid you, I think, but you know, it could have been a really great thing that happened for them.
2: I mean. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, And I don't disagree. You know, it was a case of somebody who was extremely well-meaning and had gone out and had had, they were basically putting themselves forward as an expert in an area that they literally had no experience in. Ah. It was all academic knowledge. It was all from synthesizing reading and going to workshops. They had never had a single client ever. And they unfortunately spent over six figures in trying to launch this company. This is a lesson in entrepreneurship. I know there's somebody out there who needs to hear this. I've never told this story or alluded to this story on anywhere in the media before. But, you know, I've built so many businesses and companies in my time and helped so many other people do the same. It's so much better to experiment and beta test and interest focus group things out before you do a big website or a book launch or anything like that, you know?
1: I want to add to what you're saying because I actually... This has shown up so many times in my business. Somebody will come to me in that kind of a situation. They're like, I want help writing a book. And I'll be like, cool, but I'm not going to be the one helping you. And yes. Why? You know, you have no business writing a book about your expertise until you've actually developed some expertise. Exactly. Fortunately, there's a lot of people out there who will tell people, you need a book so you can have a business. Oh, Lord. And it just isn't true. It's not and true. It's such a dramatic illustration of a big problem, but this is like, you know, investing over six figures to launch a brand with nothing behind it. No exactly. Really behind it. And so, and obviously by the time he came to you, you know, most of that money was spent. In this oh
2: company. yeah. Yeah. This Perfect. is an, an after effect of it.
1: And, you know, I wanted to, now I will let people write a booklet.
2: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Short. Yeah.
1: Quick turnaround.
2: I think that's a great idea.
1: We do help people with that. And that's why I came up with that idea, by the way, was because I literally turned away probably thousands of people over the last 17 years who came to me wanting to write a book in exactly that situation and just said, go become an expert and then come back.
2: Yes. Come back when you actually have some chops, you know, in in what you're doing. That happens more on the podcasting side of our company. And so I will pivot people from, well, I need to start a podcast. No, you don't need to start a podcast you need to build some clientele. You need to actually sell some stuff. You need to be in business. And so I'll pivot them from having their own podcast to podcast guesting. And that's a great way both to network, to generate content, to build authority, to, you know, all of those things that you want to do without the massive commitment that it is to have a podcast, a quality podcast.
1: And it really is. I think, you know, my theory, I know we're kind of a little off topic, but I agree with you. I think there's, people out here out listening to this who, who will need to hear this, is that I think that the problem when people start a podcast, when they, what they need to do is get a, get clients, or when they decide to write a book, when what they need to do is get clients, or do an audiobook, <laughs> what
2: they need to do, right.
1: is it feels productive, right? Truth. To, they can tell themselves, they can get up in the morning and say, I'm growing my business today. I'm recording a podcast. I'm working on my book. And what they're not seeing is what they're avoiding, because generally, if people don't have clients yet, and everything's theoretical, it's because they don't comfortable with doing sales. Yep. And I think a lot of what shows up looking like productivity is actually a very expensive, very long avoidance strategy that could literally eat up somebody's entire savings and set them back in terms of their ability to generate momentum. In their business, because they're just really trying to avoid sales, like subconsciously.
2: Yeah, that's very true.
1: This is what I do. This is how much it costs. MasterCard, American Express or Visa, which, you know, (laughs) and they tell themselves they're being productive. And that's why I think it's so destructive when people sell people on that. It's It's predatory. It's a
2: double whammy because, yeah.
1: not, because then when they figure it out, their resources are drained.
2: Yep. I bootstrapped my businesses in the beginning for years working, you know, other jobs and whatnot as a, exploring and all of that. Sometimes you get sold the dream. You know, I grew up in a situation and my parents owned a business and I was around, surrounded by sales. And even I wasn't comfortable with sales until I was in my, probably my late twenties, early thirties, even then. It's always something to learn. There's always something to, to master or get better at or whatever. And it never has anything to do with making the sale. It has everything to do with your internal conversation, your personal growth, and your ability to create relationships. The sales has nothing to do with sales.
1: I look at it as sales. We could do a whole podcast on
2: sales. Oh, any day.
1: But I look at it as that a sales conversation is actually just a quest
2: for clarity. And yes.
1: to help the person that I'm on the phone with come to a place of clarity. And if the clarity dictates that we work together, cool, we work together. If the clarity dictates that we don't work together, also cool, yep. don't work together. And that takes all of the pressure off everybody. because I don't feel pressure to make the sale and they don't feel pressured to or, be, or like they're being sold because that's exactly. not what the
2: conversation's about. Can I tell you a quick two minute story? Do we have time?
1: Please. Yes, we do.
2: Okay. So this was a mentor of mine that created a lot of clarity for me around sales. So Robin, how do you feel about cookies? I love cookies. Okay. I love cookies. Okay. (laughs) So if I were to bake a plate of cookies, I'm not going to say what kind, but just say, it's just a plate of cookies. And I would say, Robin, would you like a cookie? Assuming we were together and not social distancing. You would probably say yes, right? Yes. Okay. So, but if I were in a room of people and I walked around to all of them and I offered 100 people a cookie, some people are gonna say yes and some people are gonna say no, right?
1: True.
2: Right. The people who say no, is there anything wrong with my cookie?
1: Nothing's wrong with your cookie.
2: That's right. The people who say yes, is there anything actually magical about that cookie, special, or, you know, does it mean anything? Nope. Right. People say yes or no, you know, the people who say no, There's all kinds of reasons they could have said no. They could be diabetic. They could not like that particular kind of cookie. They could be allergic to one of the ingredients. They're not hungry. They're on a diet, right? (laughs) Yes. The cookie has nothing to do with me.
1: Yes, exactly.
2: It has nothing to do with my worth or even with my ability as a baker. People say yes or no. So ultimately, when you go out into the world and you think about, quote unquote, selling something, just you're offering them your cookie. And there's nothing wrong with your cookie.
1: Exactly. That's a great analogy. <laughs> yes, because that is the thing. And I think that was the hardest thing for me to get over, you know, it, because I went from a p- place of being afraid of sales to, like, I'm almost addicted to sales. Like, yes. I love selling. I think me it's too. So fun. But really, the big thing that I had to get over was taking it personally. And 100%. Like, where I was lacking or, what you know, what's wrong with me. And, you know, but you have enough of those conversations. And then you just, you know, that's how I did it was having a lot of conversations in a short period of time to the point where I didn't care.
2: (laughs) That happens a lot with people learning how to like their own voices. They just have to listen to themselves over and over again. You know, I say all the time, but when it comes, it doesn't matter what religion you are, when it comes to sales, you have to become a Buddhist in that moment. You just have to practice non-attachment.
1: There you go. That's
2: so Temporary true. conversion. You can ver- convert back afterwards.
1: <laughs> you can pick up all your baggage. On the exactly. It's fine. It'll be, It'll be fine. You. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, Tina, this has been so wonderful and so informative. Thank you so, so much for sharing your insight and wisdom and, uh, and great stories with us today.
2: Thanks, Robin. This has been awesome. I appreciate it.